problems, the problems, the problems. Oh, we so like to talk about the problems. But if you want to live a better life, if you want to have a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage, sometimes you got to stop talking about the problems and say, well, what do the healthy marriages look like? What would that look like for us? What are those things that you can do right now? I don't care if you've been married for two months or 20 years or 50 years. Your relationship can be better. And I actually want to say that even if you took one of these 12 traits of the healthy marriage we're talking about, and again, I could call this, you know, 48 healthy traits of marriage. But I'm going to focus today on just 12 of them. We had part one where I spoke about some of those things, commitment, assuming, seeing the best, communication, respectfully, laughter, and flexibility, and curiosity. But what are some of the other ones? And I want to suggest that even if you just said, okay, just this one trait, if we could incorporate this one trait into our relationship, I bet it would make an improvement. I bet it would make a change. Now, sometimes when you're choosing a spouse, you look at things like values that you share together. And obviously, when your values align with somebody else, it allows you to move forward together. But I want you to remember this. Even though you were attracted to this person because you said, yeah, we share these values, but I really like these differences. (laughs) And that is actually not uncommon. It's like, oh, I usually hear something corny like, oh, he completes me. Oh, she makes me, I don't know, I don't want to give away those corny sayings because you might say, wait a second, Joe, I I say that all the time. Are you calling me corny? No. (laughs) But what I am going to say is there are times that you thought, oh, wow, we have these things in common, but now all you see is what separates you. And and sometimes you've got to find those keys to say, well, this is what we share. Yes, we are different. And hopefully there are those things that you share. And yes, hopefully there are those things that you can value what is different about the other person. And the real key is to come up with creating ways to support the differing values. Because when you're always differing, when you're always focusing on how different you are, probably what you're doing is devaluing that other person's value. Oh, wow, you always love to watch that TV show. You spend so much time out on the boat fishing. Or you work, 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 work. Now, again, I'm not saying that there are times that you can give in to excess and do too much of one thing. When you actually lose that common purpose, the common value of creating and sustaining a better relationship, But sometimes, rather than seeing what you share, and we see this politically, and sometimes people are wise enough to actually speak about it, right? If you sit down for just a moment, Republican or Democrat, and you just have a conversation with somebody, it's like, well, what do you think about kids? Do you believe education is important? Yes, I do. Oh, yeah, I do too. What about loyalty? You think people should be loyal? Yes, I do. Well, so do I. Well, what about a healthy economy? You think that's good? Yes, I do. Yeah, so do I. Wow, we must both be... And then you find out they're a different political 
persuasion. It's like, oh, wait a second, you're the enemy. <laughs> but so often, actually, there is so much that you do share. And rather than devaluing what your partner holds true, speak about what you do share. You know, we're both committed to our children and to raising them to be independent and successful. Yeah, yeah, we do. Well, what could we do? And you might offer different solutions. It's not about just being the same. It's about valuing sometimes what is different and finding what you hold in common. Paul said in, in Galatians chapter 6, he said, I want you to live creatively. He said, if somebody falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. When you're always focused on what you don't share together, frequently what you do is you become critical. But Paul's reminder is, remember, you might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. He said, so stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens. He said, if you think you're too good for that, you're badly deceived. Again, stoop down, reach out to your spouse, even if you think they believe something different. At one point, you chose her, you chose him because what you've shared in common. It doesn't mean that you're the same people, nor should you try to be. God made you a wonderful creation, made in his image. But he also made you distinct from that other person. The next trait. And I think we're up to trait number eight, even though this might be the second one that we're talking about in this episode. But we're talking about the 12 traits of a healthy marriage. And what's the next one? You're willing to learn to grow. Remember, you have made mistakes. Your spouse has made mistakes. Now, you might be focusing more on how your spouse has made mistakes than how you have made mistakes. That's natural. <laughs> but check that impulse. Because you screw up. You say dumb things. In fact, I do it all the time. <laughs> I get things wrong. But if you're willing to learn from those mistakes, if as a couple you can say, yeah, we have badly screwed this up. But what can you do? What can you learn? How can you grow? Are you willing to admit your mistake? To actually apologize and say, oh man, I got to tell you something. Oh, here we go. No, I mean this. This is serious now. Oh boy, here we go. What? I really screwed up. I really hurt you. I'm really, really sorry. Which me, leads me into the next trait. To grow, to learn, you have to take ownership. You have to take responsibility for you, for what you've done, for your thinking, for your part of the demise in the relationship. So often couples, I, I don't think I've ever had this. <laughs> a couple come in to see me, and I've been doing this for a while. Joe, we are really having a hard time. Tell me about it. 
well, I am really screwing it up like this. And then she says, no, I'm really screwing it up like this. It just doesn't start like that. The couple sits down and then they point fingers at each other, at least proverbially, and they say, this is what he is doing wrong. This is what she is doing wrong. But what if you change that orientation and you said, this is what I am doing. This is my part that I'm playing in the demise of this relationship. It's so easy to avoid responsibility for your problems. And how do you do that easiest? With blame. If you find yourself always pointing that finger metaphorically and saying, you're doing this, you're wrong for this, look in the mirror and ask yourself, what are you doing? Because as soon as you do that, as soon as you take responsibility for what you're doing, then you can assume responsibility for making a change in your life. And that's very empowering because what you do can change the trajectory of the relationship. If you're waiting for the other person to change, that's very disempowering. That's going to just provoke anxiety within yourself. It's not so much about who's wrong. You can look at what is wrong. I would say first, remove yourself from who is wrong. You're to blame. You're doing this. Say we. This is what we are doing. And then... If you want to take that next step, and I think this is what we're doing wrong, but you cannot stop there. You can't stop and say, this is what we're doing wrong. The most effective thing that you can do at this point is to say, and this is what we can do differently. Blame. It keeps you stuck. It doesn't move you forward. But assuming responsibility and assuming responsibility for solutions, that is the good that you can do. I always like reading this. John chapter 9. Jesus is walking down the street. And Jesus and his disciples, they see a man blind from birth. I I talk about this scripture because I just find it fascinating. What was the first thing out of the disciples' mind? Jesus, can you heal him? No. (laughs) Rabbi. Who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? (laughs) They just want to know who to blame. They weren't thinking, oh, what can we do for him? What is the solution? How can we help him out? Can you heal him, Lord? Who's to blame, his parents or him? He is in rough shape. Man, what happened? And Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. He said, you're looking for someone to blame. He said, There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Stop the blame game. You're probably blaming the other person, but even if you're blaming yourself, oh, I'm wrong, I'm miserable, I'm no good, I can't change, that's not helping you. Take responsibility. See what you can do. Remember, God living, breathing, moving in you, you can do more than what you think. If you stop focusing on yourself and focus on the solutions, and God is the ultimate solution to your life. Trait number 10 of the healthy marriage. 
hope. Believing that good ultimately triumphs. Remember, the foundation of hope is belief. As a therapist, one of the things I do in therapy is I do a lot of EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Can't go into what all that means. It's quite a mouthful. It's difficult to even say it. (laughs) But it's traditionally talked about as addressing memories, how you remember things. I I think about it a little bit different. Again, I, I haven't created my own protocol. I'm true to the EMDR protocol. But really what I'm addressing is belief. You did something in your life or something happened to you in your life. Let's just say you were neglected, you were abused. And as a result of that incident, you formed a belief about yourself. Maybe you formed a belief and it's inaccurate, but it's what you feel to believe uh, you believe is true. You formed the belief, I'm unlovable, I'm no good, because you weren't loved. You weren't treated with goodness. And what I do as a therapy is I go back. I allow you to experience that memory, the belief that accompanies it, the the positive and negative cognition, the emotion that you feel, where you feel that in your body. But then we begin to address it. It's like we got to update this because there are things in your life that can present as hope, as good And the good really can win out. Hope keeps love alive. You stop hoping and the marriage dies. That's why sometimes if you're still fighting in a relationship, believe it or not, the good news, maybe a positive way that you can understand that is you still are hoping for something good. It's when you just walk away and you give up and say, I'm done. When you resign yourself, that it's all over. That's, in fact, when the relationship really is over. But you can come back from that place of letting go. Just saying, well, I don't know how, but I can move on. Psalms 131 says, wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. If your relationship feels like it's going down the tubes, don't let hope go down the tubes with it. Psalms 146. The psalmist says, Don't put your life in the hands of experts who know nothing of life, of salvation life. Mere humans don't have what it takes. When they die, their projects die with them. He said, Instead, get help from the God of Jacob. Put your hope in God and no real blessing. Sometimes it's not about you saying, "Ah, I just can't do it. Okay, I get that completely. I've been there. I I don't know how this is going to work out. (laughs) Sorry, Sakura. Now what? And then if the spirit moves through me, I allow the spirit. I listen to the spirit. I'm sensitive to the spirit. The spirit says to me in a whispered voice, Joe, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about what God can do in your life. Remember about hope, and Paul spoke so beautifully about this, and it's a constant reminder when we think about, oh, if you just believe. Okay, believe in what? I frequently 
lose belief in myself. But what I try to never do is to lose belief in God. Paul said so beautifully, he said, we call Abraham father, not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when Abraham was a nobody. Isn't that what we always read in Scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as a father of many peoples. Abraham was named father and then became a father. Why? Not because of what Abraham did, but because Abraham dared to trust God to do what only God could do. Raise the dead to life. With a word, make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway. Deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. Hope. You might not see how this can happen for you. You might not see how your dead marriage can become resurrected. That's okay. But don't give up on the hope of what God can do. Don't look at yourself and say, well, I just can't do this. Abraham didn't look at his old shriveled up body. Remember, he was about 90 or 100 before he had his first child. <laughs> How would you like to be told at 90, you are going to have a child? What? Not even sure I want that. <laughs> but Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they did want that. But they were aware of how biology worked. But they didn't say, oh, it can't happen. They said, well, we can't make this happen, and you can't resurrect that relationship, but God can make it happen, and that's where your hope has to live. Another trait, trait number 11, I think we're up to. I sometimes get lost in my numbers. Numbers are not my strong suit. <laughs> empathy. Now, what does empathy mean? Some people talk about empathy and sympathy as two different, as, as the same thing, and they're really not. Empathy and sympathy is different. Just broken down simply. Sympathy is about feeling something. Oh, wow, that's terrible. I feel terrible. But empathy is different. Empathy actually involves both the head and the heart. Empathy is that real desire to understand what the other is feeling and what's behind that feeling. What does that mean? It's hard, I, I, I give you this, it's hard to sometimes even understand your own life, your own decisions. You know, you might think, yeah, I'm getting to know myself. Well, good luck with the challenge of getting to know the other person. But that's exactly what a healthy marriage does. As they spend that time, that effort, really trying to focus on the other person to understand their challenges, their hopes, their dreams. God wants you to use both your head and your heart as you live out your life of faith and belief. It's not just heart. It's not just that emotional, oh, wow, I'm so excited I follow God. Because God in the parable of the seed says, yeah, that excitement, that might just wear off. Because that's just a human emotion. And maybe your desire, that emotion that you feel within your marriage, that too will wear off. 
emotions will come and go. I, as I say, emotions can change based on how much sun you're getting that day. If it's raining too much, if you're hired, tired or hungry. That's why you've got to use both your heart and your head to say, I choose, I really want to get to know you. I want to understand your heart, your problems. It's not easy, but that's what empathy is all about. And again, you have been given this tremendous life. And God says, I want you to use your head and your heart. Your faith isn't just about sentiment. And it's not just head. It's about that movement. Empathy actually moves you from just saying, oh, I feel so bad for my poor and starving neighbor. Empathy is, no, I'm going to do something. I, I, I understand I try to be able to walk. What would that be like? What would that feel like? What's going on? Until you're actually moved to do something to help that person in need. So the last trait I want to talk about, and again, I might come back to this topic with 87 other traits of the healthy marriage. But for now, we're leaving it at 12 because that's a wonderful number. And I want to talk about Forgiveness. In good marriages and healthy marriages, husbands and wives are quick to ask for and give forgiveness. Hey, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Those words are so soothing. It's like a pleasant balm. It's like, oh, a fragrance that just feels good. I'm sorry. Now, again, there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And a different time, I might spend more time talking about just that. But I want you to think about this. In prayer, Jesus said, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. Now, I hope you're sitting down for this next part. Because what Jesus says to you is, you can't get forgiveness from God without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. Now, you might be withholding forgiveness because what you're saying is, wait, what? He is doing what she is doing. It's not okay. And that's true. God commands you to forgive, but reconciliation is the other step. And again, I'm not here to talk, speak about reconciliation so much. But God says you must forgive, and you must forgive more for your sake, believe it or not, than for the other person. Because when you choose to withhold forgiveness, what you're doing is you're holding on to that hardness. You're holding on to the idea of retaliation, of hurt, of anger. But if your spouse says, hey, I'm really sorry, you got to say, and I forgive you. And let's try to work this out so that we're treating each other differently. You got to let it go. You might not be understanding the context, why that person, why your spouse did what he or she did. But remember, you might be getting it all wrong because you don't understand context like God understands context. 
And Paul said in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he said, you know, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. So often you might be judging them. He said, we looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong. He said, well, we don't do that anymore. Now we look at the inside and get this and see that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. And that's what forgiveness does. It gives you that opportunity to say, let's start over. The old life gone, a new life emerges. It all begins with forgiveness. He said, remember, all this comes from the God who settled the relationship between him and us, and he calls you now to settle that relationship with each other. God put the whole world, including you, square with himself through Jesus, giving you a fresh start. You too can experience that fresh start, and it begins with forgiveness. Traits of the Healthy Marriage. I will meet you back on the road. And remember, always forward.